Good morning, everyone. My name is Alex. I'm the lead pastor here at Courtright, and I want to add my word of welcome to what Mike said at the beginning. If you're here for the first time, or maybe you've been visiting with us for a few weeks, we hope that you will feel at home. And if you come earlier, today that was a bit of a challenge, I realize, but uh, if you come, say, 10.30 before the 11 a.m. service starts, we do have coffee in between the services, so you could enjoy that. Today we're continuing our sermon series on Christian hospitality. We're into the third week of that now. We've been exploring what it means for our lives that God gives us this welcome, that he brings us in to his family, that uh, he is the great host who embraces us and invites us to extend that embrace and that welcome to others. What does that look like? How does that change our lives? Uh, today is also uh, the first Sunday of Lent. And uh, you know, often we think about Lent as giving something up. That's probably the first association people have with Lent. But really, if you go back in the history of the church, uh, Lent was primarily intended to help us to pay attention to God first, but also to ourselves. That, you know, in our lives we struggle at times to step back and to consider who we are and what we're doing and to open ourselves up to what God might want for us. So, so Lent is meant to bring in certain disciplines to our lives, certain practices. We as a family are, starting today, going to be doing a digital Sabbath for each of the six Sundays of Lent. So I, I got up at like 5 a.m. and, and took away the iPhones. I felt a little bit like the Grinch, you know, like, um, but hey, they're hidden and I'm not telling you where they are. Um, I might tell you, but I can't tell my family. So we're not going to have screens. We're not going to have internet every Sunday for Lent. And we did this last year as well with mixed results. This year, we're really pushing hard on it. So, but the purpose of all that, we think of Lent sometimes, if you know a little bit about it, also is about repentance. But in uh, the book of Acts in the New Testament, it talks about uh, the repentance that leads to life. I think we associate repentance with feeling bad about stuff. But repentance is actually changing our mind. It's changing our practices. And it leads to life. It leads to this abundant life that Jesus promises us. Um, and one of the things it can lead to, one of the traditional disciplines of Lent is hospitality, actually. And as we shed certain things, we can embrace other things. So last Sunday, I was up in Fergus. I was preaching at St. Andrews, where I serve as their interim moderator. I'm helping them uh, as they search for a new pastor. And I also led their annual meeting last Sunday. And later in the day, I went over to visit Phyllis and Titus Chariot and their daughter Malika, um, whom I will baptize in three weeks on March 31st. Whenever we have a, a month with five Sundays at court rate, the fifth Sunday, the last Sunday, is a single service. So just keep in mind, March 31st, 10 a.m. service, baptisms. We're pretty excited about that. Uh, I, As I spent some time with Phyllis and with Titus, um, we talked about hospitality, actually. We talked about how in Kenya, hospitality is quite different from in Canada. In Canada, people seem to be really kind of hesitant, 
uh, about inviting you over to their house. But in Kenya, it's totally different. You get invited over quickly, um, and people just know each other, especially in villages in Kenya. Uh, and I asked them how the service went that morning at, at Corbett, because I wasn't here. I was up in Fergus. And they told me that after the service, after Allison had preached on hospitality, uh, they had been approached by a couple who invited them over for lunch today. And I thought, that's great. And they, in turn, had invited a couple that's relatively new to Courtright uh, from Brazil over to their house. And they made it sound like just everybody after the service was inviting each other over to each other's homes. It was this big kind of mosh pit of invitations. And I love the sound of that. And so I'm expecting to see that again today. Somebody actually already came up to me and said, who should I invite over for lunch? And so if you put in a good word with the pastor, maybe I can, I can get you an invite. Now, now, some of us are busy, obviously, so you may not be able to take people up on their invitation. But um, I was really pleased to hear that that had happened. So we want more and more to be practicing hospitality at Courtright. I think I've found Courtright to be a really welcoming church, but I'm the pastor, right? So uh, we want to reach out to the people who join us who are new, um, and we want uh, to be intentional about this in all kinds of ways, because hospitality is not optional for us as Christians. All of us are called to it. It's not a particular gift. It's something we must all practice using our various gifts. And it's a mark of spiritual maturity in the New Testament, too. Basically, if you hear on Sunday morning, me or whoever talking about love, we sing about love, 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 love. The practice of love, what love looks like in our lives, in the church, and as we go out into the world, is hospitality. It is listening, it is welcoming, it is feeding, it is serving. That's the flesh on those bones. So today we're going to look at Hebrews 13, but first let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that you are the greatest host in the universe, that you are a God of the most tremendous hospitality. We thank you that you do say to us, come as you are. You don't expect us to to lay out the fine linen and the china. You don't want anything but who we are. And you always welcome us. In fact, you rush out to greet us. I love that song we sang, that you have this reckless love, that you come after us. You pursue us. Um, We thank you for that because we need that because we are prone to wander. And we pray that today as we look into your word that you would hold like a mirror up to us so that we would see who we are in the light of your love and also recognize how badly we need you, um, how lost we are without you. So would you speak your truth and your grace into our hearts and our minds, Holy Spirit, today in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So we're going to read Hebrews 13, verses 1 to 14. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, because God has said, and this is from Deuteronomy 31, quotation, 
God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, and this is taken from Psalm 118, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. And here the author of Hebrews is talking about the Jewish form of worship at the tabernacle. And he continues, The high priest carries the blood of animals for sacrifice into the most holy place as a sin offering. But the bodies of those animals are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is yet to come. This is the word of the Lord. A few years ago, we went to a friend's cottage on Lake Huron. On the way, we passed through Mennonite country, you know, up through Elmira, that part of the province. And we drove past all these farms where there were families gathered outdoors at tables, their kids playing in the fields. We saw signs that said, eggs, $2, not for sale on Sunday. And I had my vintage iPod on and I was listening to a biography of Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, the world's most valuable company. Steve Jobs had this remarkable vision for the the possibility of digital technology, a vision beyond the personal computer, which was just starting out uh, when he founded Apple. He had a, a vision for Apple to create these devices that would meet all of our needs, all of our digital needs for music, for film, for the Internet, for communication, for entertainment. And as I listened, it's pretty ironic, uh, as I listened to the history of the iPod on my iPod, as we were driving along in this car itself, the product of technological innovation designed to make our lives more efficient, to make us faster. And as we were zipping past horses and buggies, I wondered to myself, what have we missed as the church in the 21st century? As I looked out on these Mennonite families eating together, enjoying a simple Sunday afternoon, living distinctly in our Western culture, visibly different visibly enjoying a life that you might say has a richness to it that some of us, with all our devices, can't seem quite to grasp. Why is it that we, as the church, have such trouble loving each other, being together, responding to God's call? Do you know what the biggest health problem is in North America right now? It's not cancer. It's not heart disease. Those are serious things, of course. But experts say that the biggest challenge we face right now in our society is the challenge of loneliness. It's isolation 
And it's killing us, literally, physically, loneliness does a number on you. But of course, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, it's debilitating as well. We're more connected than ever by our technologies, but we have fewer and fewer close face-to-face relationships, the kinds of relationships that nurture us, that feed our souls. Jesus came so that we could have life, so that we could have abundant life. He came to renew us, to fill up that emptiness we feel. And so today, as we explore what Christian hospitality is, we're going to ask ourselves four questions. First of all, what is Christian hospitality? We've been talking about that already, but we'll fill in some more blanks today. Secondly, why do it? Someone at our elders meeting on Wednesday night said, why bother with this? It's a pain. Why would you bother? Third, where do we see it happening? And how could we ourselves do more of it? Fourth, given the call, which is a high calling, and all the needs that we see around us, how is it even possible for us to fulfill this? So we'll start with what is Christian hospitality. I I love the way Tim Keller defines it. He says that Christian hospitality is an attitude and a practice. So, So an attitude, a mindset... Uh, an attitude of our heart, but also habits we get into, structure we put into our lives, practices we cultivate that seeks to turn strangers into guests, into friends, and eventually into brothers and sisters. And we see that immediately in this passage in verse 1, don't we? Christian hospitality is what happens when we love each other as family. I remember talking to a student when I was at Knox Church where I served in Toronto, and he just was so fed up by the way we talked about church family, our church family, 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 family. He said, if someone comes up to me and calls me brother, I forget his name, he said, I'm out of here. I'm done with this. But I said to him, you know, the reason we do that is not because we are a perfect family. We're not pretending that. The church is a family that aspires more and more to be healthy, to be in the image of God. But it's the language of the New Testament. It's the language we're given in Scripture. That's why we call ourselves a church family. It's not to be cute. It's not to annoy people, uh, but it certainly annoyed this, this student. But as I explained that to him, he's grasped that actually we're on a journey together as we become brothers and sisters, as we recognize that Jesus underwrites that reality, but also that all of us are struggling and growing into that, right? The Greek word here for hospitality is a word that we've talked about each Sunday of this series, and it's philoxenos. It means love of the stranger. So philos is a kind of love. I remember when my little brother and I were fighting in the back of the car as kids growing up, my dad, who was driving, would would often shout loudly, Philadelphia! Like that was supposed to help or something. It, it, it never did. But Philadelphia literally means city of brotherly love, right? And so then he, he eventually evolved into threatening to kick us out of the car and make us walk home. But um, we never quite stopped fighting in the backseat of the car. So philos is a kind of love. It's, it's the love of a friend. It's affection. Uh, and xenos is a word that means stranger or outsider. And so last week in her sermon, Alison defined 
hospitality, this word philoxenia, as friend love for strangers, which I thought was, was really helpful. Because if you meet a stranger, at first you're going to be wary, right? You are maybe a little nervous, you don't know them yet, but to immediately see a stranger as not a stranger, but as a, as a friend, is radical. It is not something we do naturally. So what else is Christian hospitality? Well, verse 4 says the kind of love we're talking about is concerned for those in prison and reaches out to them. People in prison being at the very margins of society, easily forgotten about. People that we could blame, reject, and abandon. But no, here we're called to treat them as though we too were in prison. And then Christian hospitality also advocates for those who are suffering, those who are victims of oppression. So it would seem that it's social social justice, that, that that's what Christian hospitality is. But what comes right after that doesn't seem to fit at all. We go from social justice to a focus on faithfulness in marriage and celibacy outside of marriage. Wait a second. How do these two things go together? Because we know social justice is for liberals, right? And we know sexual purity is for conservatives. You can't have both together, can you? Well, actually, Christian faith does bring those things together inseparably. In our culture, the message we get, most of all, we're bombarded by it, is that individual rights are what matter. That the pursuit of happiness, your individual pursuit of happiness, has to be the priority. But the gospel says something entirely different. The gospel of Jesus Christ says something different about your sexuality and your money, too. It says that they're not your own. You have received them. They are a gift from God, not primarily for your own pleasure, but for the sake of others. Your money is to be shared. It's to help others with. Same thing with your body. It's a gift from God that unites a man and a woman, and it's only to be shared within the covenant of marriage because, again, it's for others. It's God's design for the birth and nurturing of children. So here's a question for you then. What is shaping your view of your money and your sexuality? Is it our culture and its unspoken assumptions, its own religious outlook? Or is it scripture? Is it the gospel, the Christian faith? Are you focused most of all on your own pleasure? Or do you see your money and your sexuality as gifts God has given you to be enjoyed, of course, but most of all, for God's purposes. But then, having answered a little more this question, what is Christian hospitality, we come to the why. Why even bother? Why not keep my body and my money for myself and for my select group of family and friends? Well, simply... The answer for any Christian has to be because of Jesus. Jesus, who did not treat his body or the riches of his glory as though they were his own, but rather gave them up in order to make us a family, to draw us into his kind of community. That is why we practice Christian hospitality, because of Jesus. 
Now, hospitality has been practiced since ancient times, of course, in different cultures, different places, and it still is today. This past November, I was in Morocco with my little brother who lives in Dublin, Ireland. We met up there. We occasionally go on trips together. And before Kenneth and I got together, I was there for a few days, and I, I met a guy on the overnight bus from Marrakesh to Fez. His name was Noreen, and he's, he was part of the private guard of the King of Morocco. So I, I learned quite a bit in our conversation. I told him I was a pastor. We, we, had, uh, we learned a lot from each other. And when we arrived, he, he said to me, you're coming with me. So I was already, I had, you know, some directions on how to take the bus to the old city. But Noreen said, this is a taxi. You're safe with me in this taxi. If you were not with me, you would be in deep trouble in this taxi. And so we got in and he took me to the old city and he paid my fare and I offered him money. And he actually got pretty angry at me when I did that. That was the side of him I hadn't seen up to that point. And, and on the bus earlier, he had said, you can come to my house. You should stay with me and my family. And I told him that I was meeting my brother in a hotel. But I was, I was really moved and I was humbled by his hospitality. Have you had an experience like that before? Where a stranger welcomes you and goes beyond what you might expect. You remember those things, don't you? They make an impact on you. But God's hospitality goes even further. When God made his covenant with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, he said this to them. He said, I am the great God and I defend the cause of the orphan and the widow. I love the foreigner residing among you and give them food and clothing. And you, you too are to love those who are foreigners. For you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. So hospitality can be about a lot of things. It can be about duty, kindness, honor, tradition. But God says you do it because of what I have already done for you. God says my salvation, my choosing you, embracing you, loving you with a love that will never end is my hospitality to you. You've been saved by my grace. I brought you in. Now you can extend that grace to others. God says, go out of your way to care for foreigners and for the poor, not for the expected people, the guests of honor, the people who might get you somewhere. There might be some advantage in it for you. He says, spend yourself freely. He says, take all that you have and all that you are, your gifts, your talents, your money, your home, your car, all your stuff, and spend them on people with less than you. Pour all that you've been given into others. It's amazing. It's daunting. It's what we're called to as Christians. Let's go back for a minute to that part about angels. Did you pick up on that? seemed a little strange, maybe. Well, it's a reference to a story in Genesis 18 where Abraham welcomes three strangers into his home. He brings them in, he washes their feet, he gives them this great feast. He doesn't know who they are, he does all of this for them. And then it turns out that they were the Lord and his angels. Here's what that means. It means that something extraordinary happens when you practice ordinary hospitality. God is present in that moment. 
and shapes the relationship you're building, the encounter you're having with this other person or these other people. It's like when you are hospitable, it has a sacramental quality to it. Now, we know the sacraments, right? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. For us, for most Protestants, it's those two. Well, baptism, it's like we order the soundtrack. You can actually hear it if you listen. <laughs> baptism uses water, just something very everyday. And the Lord's Supper, when we pull that table out on the first Sunday of each month, again, ordinary stuff, bread, wine, And yet, when they are dedicated to God, the bread and the wine and the water, they are a vehicle for God's life-changing presence and his amazing grace coming into our lives. Christian hospitality is like that. It's a means of grace. It changes things. It renews. It encourages. It builds up. And it's surprising as well. Abraham had no idea who he was hosting that day. You can think of another story, one of my favorites in the whole Bible, of these two disciples of Jesus, downcast, all their hopes dashed on the road to Emmaus after the crucifixion. Their Lord had died, had been killed, and they're walking along, and someone comes up next to them. They don't recognize who it is, but they invite him in to join them for a meal, to stay with them. And in the breaking of bread, they recognize it's Jesus, risen from the dead. If you want your faith to grow, maybe right now you're in a place where you feel like you're not really growing. Maybe you have all all kinds of doubts. You're not sure. You feel complacent. You recognize that in yourself. If you want the resurrection life of Jesus, this is how it happens. It's ordinary. It's the practice of hospitality. So take someone out for coffee. Invite someone over to your house. It is an everyday thing that you do, and yet God will work powerfully through that. I love the way John Piper describes what happens when we practice Christian hospitality. He says that we get the joy of becoming conduits of God's hospitality rather than being self-decaying cul-de-sacs. A cul-de-sac is a dead end, right? So we get the joy of being channels of God's love and hospitality rather than self-decaying cul-de-sacs. We, the joy of receiving God's hospitality decays and it dies if it doesn't flourish in our hospitality to others. So this isn't given for us to keep it to ourselves. If we do that, it dies, and our soul will eventually die with it. It's given to us to extend to others. It multiplies, it grows, it flourishes, it expands. That is its nature if it's being lived out by us, as we're called to live it out. So think, think for a minute. Who do you know right now in your life who needs some encouragement? Who do you know who needs you to come alongside them in their battle against loneliness, against circumstances, against whatever challenge they're facing? And how could you do that? How are you doing that? Over the years, you will not fully understand, you will not see the impact that that ordinary stuff has on people. 
But you can be sure that there are angels all around. That heaven is coming to earth as you do those things. In Tim Hortons, in your living room, when you feel like you don't have, you're not ready, you don't have the food, but you've done it anyway. You've invited someone anyway. You're busy, you don't have the time, you do it anyway, and God meets you. So let's review. What is hospitality? It's an attitude and a practice that seeks to turn strangers into guests, friends, and eventually brothers and sisters. It reaches out to new people. It makes them feel welcome. And especially it goes after and welcomes people the world ignores. People the world excludes. People who are different. People who are unlovely. People who are unwealthy. People who are unconnected. People who are not welcome. When you make people like that feel welcome, when you include them, God gives you his spirit. God lifts you up. God fills you up so that you can pour into others. Why do we do it? We do it because Jesus first loved us. Now, where do we see it happening? We've talked about the what and the why. Now, where is this going on in our lives? Where could it happen more in our church community for you individually? Well, I want to suggest a few ways that you could do this. In your neighborhood, whether you live in a house or you live in an apartment, you can ask people over. Invite them in. Some of them might be suspicious. They'll wonder what you want. They'll think, I bet he's an insurance salesperson. Or they're busy and they won't be able to come. Don't let that stop you. Invite them anyway and see how it transforms where you live, your view of where you live. I remember when we moved to Guelph, three people on our street came over. One person brought a bottle of wine. One person brought a basket of fruit. Another person brought a meal. And immediately we had relationships with those people like overnight, and the richness of that, the way that sped up what might have come over time was remarkable, and the way that it changed our relationship with the street we lived on. Don't wait for people to do it for you. Do it for them, and it will become a two-way street. Secondly, you can invite friends into your spiritual home. What's that? Well, that's here. That's this. That's our church community. That's your small group. That's worship services on Sunday morning. And then have them over for lunch afterwards or go out for a meal and pay. You can be the one to pay. Yes, this is going to cost you something. Not just in terms of the money. It'll cost you, but you're also taking a risk when you invite someone to something like church, aren't you? When you invite someone to youth group on Friday night. I know when I was in high school, I wouldn't have done that, but my kids do it, and it amazes me. Or when you invite someone from your residence or from a course you're taking to whatever Christian group on campus you're involved with, to their meeting. All these things are risks. But God's with you in that. A third suggestion. As Christians, we should be eating together. We should be doing that informally all the time. 
Things happen over food, right? We know this. Things happen over a meal that would otherwise not happen. They don't happen when we plan it, when we program it. Why not invite someone over for lunch after the service today? There are a hundred reasons why you might choose not to do that. Just do it anyway and see what happens. I want to see what happened last Sunday happen again, okay? I want to see the invitations going out. I'm excited to see that. And fourthly, always make it your priority wherever you are in your workplace, on the street where you live, in your school, to look for the person who's new. Seek out the stranger. Welcome them. Take time for them. Listen to them. There's a woman who works at the main branch of the Guelph Public Library. She's a security guard. Her name is Gail. She's amazing. I've talked to her a few times. Most of all, though, I just watch her. I watch how she walks around the, the, the library. I almost called it a hospital. Um, <laughs> and the care she takes with people who, if you've been to the main branch of the Guelph Public Library, you will know this. <coughs> Excuse me. People who are loud, people who are swearing, people who are sprawled out on couches that should be open for anyone to use. Gail comes alongside them. She knows their name. And she says their name to them. And she's asked them how they're doing. She listens to them. She respects them. She, the kindness that she offers them, it's pretty moving. Because we know that Guelph, like other cities, has a problem with drugs, has a problem with homelessness. And I so admire this woman, and I've told her that before, and she looks kind of startled and scared uh, the way that she loves the people in the library, the people that most people will walk quite a distance to avoid. So we're called to do that. There are some other ways we can do this as a church together. Have you considered how you could do more than just drink coffee? How many cups of coffee have you drunk after the service here? Thanks, Hannah. Have you ever made the coffee? Maybe it's time. Maybe it's time to make the coffee. We have someone who has made coffee for us for, I don't know, probably 20 years, who's stepping back from doing that right now. And we're looking for someone to make coffee. Could you make coffee? I bet you could. I bet it would be really good coffee, too. Actually, you might need to bring your own for that. But it's what I like to call pretty decent church coffee that we serve. Another way as a church we can do this and you can get involved is help us to dream about new possibilities for hospitality. Robin, I don't know if you remember this, but a few years ago, Robin Fletcher said to me, there are all these houses going up for sale on Devere Drive and in the neighborhood. People are moving in and the the neighborhood's changing. There are young families coming in and, and they need help. What can we do to welcome them and to encourage them and and It's a great idea that we didn't actually pursue. Robin's busy enough as it is. Maybe you're someone who could run with that. Maybe you have your own idea. What is it you love to do? 
what is it that you could bring people together to do with you? One of the things that we will enjoy about having a permanent 10 a.m. single service is that there will be time before and after the service where we can offer courses, workshops, based on the special interests we have. So maybe you love video games. Is there a way that we could incorporate that into an event at the church? Maybe you're really interested in the environment. Well, caring for the environment begins in the book of Genesis in the Bible. Could you bring people together to dream about that? So tons of possibilities there as well. And then volunteering in the city. I mean, God calls us to seek the peace and prosperity of the city of Guelph, not some abstract city, to get involved. Maybe to volunteer with some of our mission partners, like the Life Center, Chalmers Community Services, or with another organization in Guelph, like Hospice Wellington. We have quite a few people who volunteer there. So this is going to be work, yes. And the needs are almost limitless, but God calls us to do it one day at a time, one step at a time, into the things that he's putting on your mind. It's going to be hard. It's going to be expensive. I'm not pretending otherwise. So how can we pull this off? Well, it says it clearly in verse 5. It says that in order for this to happen, you have to know that God will never leave you and will never forsake you. And the way you do that is by fixing your eyes on Jesus, with the Holy Spirit filling you with his reckless love. If you fix your eyes on Christ, he will accompany you through this. In verse 11, it says that Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. In the Bible, you see this again and again. You see that hospitality happens when people go outside the gate of the city to bring in weary travelers. That's Middle Eastern hospitality. It goes back centuries, millennia. But Jesus receives the opposite of that hospitality. Why? Well, all of us are wanderers. We are all of us in exile from God. And we deserve it. That's not something that's easy for us to hear, but it's true. We wanted to take over the city. We wanted to run things on our own terms and leave God well out of it. That is the very essence of sin. But on the cross, Jesus was thrown outside the gate, just like we were cast out of the Garden of Eden. Jesus spent his whole life that way. From the beginning, there was no room for him. He had to be born in a stable. He said, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus was homeless. And on the cross, most of all, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken. Why would that happen? It happened because Jesus took the exile we deserve so that God could bring us home, so that God could bring us into his family. He died so that we could come home. And that's the promise that will see us through all of this. Verse 14 says that we're waiting for the city which is yet to come. Revelation 21 and 22 paints us a picture of that. The city of God coming down from heaven 
with a tree of life at its very center. That is your real home. That is the hope that you have ultimately for the future. So Jesus is the ultimate host. He sits at the head of the table when we celebrate the Lord's Supper at the head of every table. He promises to heal you of your loneliness, of your hopelessness, of your weariness, and to satisfy you completely. And if you trust him, you will follow him outside the gate. You will bear the disgrace. You will pay the cost because you see the amazing grace of Jesus and what he did for you. It captivates you. It fills you up. It's a love like nothing else. So let's look for the outsider. Let's seek the seeker. Let's welcome the stranger. Let's spend ourselves on their behalf. Let's be hospitable to them the way Christ was hospitable to us. And we can expect to find ourselves in the company of angels as we do that. On earth as it is in heaven. Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you that you yourself are in relationship as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's out of that harmony, out of that mystic, sweet communion as the triune God, out of your own love that you created us. We sometimes have a hard time believing you really love us. We want to earn it. We want to find it elsewhere. We seek it where we can never be satisfied. And now on this first Sunday of Lent, together we turn back to you in repentance. And we know it's the repentance that leads to life, that you want us to live You want us to live here now. You want us to share your abundant life with others, to offer hospitality, and then to live with you forevermore. We thank you that you've conquered death. Lord, when things seem hopeless in our lives, when we find ourselves alone, you invite us into your grace. You bring people into our lives to bless us. So show us the way to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.